parable, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Paradigm shift, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. In other words, a new reality. The parables of Jesus were not just simple stories or teaching illustrations to make a moral or spiritual point. They were meant to disrupt and to provoke the imagination, to invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. His parables upend our notions about life and challenge us to view his kingdom accurately, to not just simply think differently, but to live out a new reality. They are expressions of Jesus' shocking announcement that God's kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to see all of you here at the Medina East Campus, whether you're in the room or you're watching online. I just want to say, too, if you guys happen to see some folks coming in and they're looking for a seat, if you don't mind just squeezing in when you see someone looking for a chair, that'd be an awesome way just to make space for everybody. But uh, we're so, so glad to have you guys here this morning. And like Grace just said a moment ago, and like the video just, like you just saw in the video, uh, we are in the midst of a series that's called Paradigm Shift. And so uh, if you're just joining us, this is actually the fourth week. Uh, that we've been in this series together. And quite simply, what we're doing in this series is we are looking at some of Jesus's most famous parables that he ever spoke, some of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught. And the reason that we've called this series Paradigm Shift, um, uh, just like you saw in the video, is because that's actually exactly what Jesus's parables were originally intended to do. Uh, What we've been saying in this series is this, we've been saying that Jesus's parables are meant to mess with our paradigms. And so we said, contrary to what some people might think, uh, parables are not just cute little stories for kids, uh, nor are they just helpful little teaching aids. We said that, uh, that Jesus, that the parables that he gave, they originally were intended to kind of challenge and upend the way that we think about certain things and to cause us to look at things differently. It's intended to evoke a paradigm shift. And so, so far in this series, if you've been with us, we've had a chance to look at three of Jesus' most famous parables. So we got a chance to hear from Pastor Kevin and from Colin. And I just want to encourage you, if you guys missed those talks over the past few weeks, I would highly encourage you to listen to those. I am so thankful for those guys. And I could just tell you, man, I'm thankful for this teaching team. I've learned so much over the past few weeks from hearing those guys. Uh, but this week, as we continue in this series, I want to invite you to look with me at yet another parable. And so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you just go ahead and open them up with me. And I want to invite you to get to Matthew chapter 13. Okay, so Matthew 13 is where we're going to go uh, here this morning. And uh, if you need to use one of our Bibles, so if you don't have your own Bible or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you can get to page 795 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. Uh, that we've provided for you. And then let me just say this. We say this all the time, but we really mean it. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have one. So you can take one home, make it a gift from us to you, and we would encourage you to read it. So Matthew 13 is where we're gonna go. Now, as you guys are locating and finding Matthew 13, I thought maybe I'd just tell you this this story. There's this story I heard a long time ago, and it's just kind of stuck with me. And I actually find myself thinking about it often. Uh, But the story, some of you maybe have heard this, but it's of a man who lived in uh, Adamstown, Pennsylvania. And one day he went to a flea market and he found this painting that he ended up purchasing for $4. Now, the reason that he bought this painting wasn't because he was interested in the painting. He actually didn't like the painting. He bought it because he liked the frame. 
So he purchased the painting for $4. He went home and he detached the painting from the frame. And when he did it, um, something behind the painting fell out onto the floor. And it was this old folded up piece of paper. So he picked it up and he unfolded it. And um, he pretty much immediately recognized that he had found something that was a pretty rare find. So sure enough, he ended up calling an appraiser uh, and a historian, and they looked at these things. And what he had found, what was behind the painting, ended up being one of only 500 of the original official copies of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, in fact, this is a picture of what he found. There are only 23 of these in known existence. And so he realized when he found this that he had just made a life-changing discovery, that this would change his life. So sure enough, they ended up auctioning this thing off. It auctioned the first time for $2.4 million and ended up auctioning again later for $8.2 million. This guy's life was forever changed. Now, why do I tell you that story? Well, I love stories like that. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I think a lot of us do. I feel like... um, We hear these stories sometimes in the news about, you know, someone who found a rare comic book in the attic that changed their life, or we hear stories about people who went through a thrift store and they found something that was of incredible value, or, you know, maybe for some of you guys, you used to like to watch the antique road show, you know, people find stuff and their life has changed. And uh, I don't know about you, but nothing like that has ever happened to me. Um, I like to imagine what it would be like if it did. It'd be kind of cool. But I I think, and here's why I tell that story, because if you can just imagine what that would be like, if you can imagine what that would feel like, if you can imagine the kind of life change that you'd experience as a result of something like that, I think that Jesus is about to tell us in this parable, that's a little bit of what it's like to follow him. It's actually a little bit what it's like to follow him. And like, what do you mean by that? Well, let's look together at the parables that Jesus gives. So this is Matthew chapter 13, starting off in verse 44. Here's the parable that Jesus speaks. He says this, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought that field. Now what she does, Jesus goes on. He actually gives a second parable, though I think these two parables are intended to be taken as one. Here's a second one. He says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. And so there you have it. Uh, Just three verses, two simple parables. And that's what we're gonna be spending our time thinking about. Now, I know that at face value, when we read these, these parables don't really seem that impressive or they don't seem that profound. But I believe that like the parables themselves, that if you take a little bit of time to look a little closer and to dig a little deeper, that you'll see that within these parables are some very, very, very valuable insights that Jesus is trying to show us. So that's what I wanna do with the rest of our time is I wanna take some time and dig at these parables a little bit and see if we can find their meaning together. And what I wanna invite you to discover with me is I believe that Jesus through these parables is communicating at least three things, at least three things. And here they are. Here's what I think Jesus is showing us is that following Jesus, that following him, following Christ is a treasure of incomparable value. That is easily and often overlooked. Yet, when discovered, evokes joyful abandon. So I wanna invite you to look with me for these things in this parable, that following Jesus is a treasure of incomparable value that is easily and often overlooked. And yet, when discovered, evokes joyful 
abandoned. All right, so I actually want to think through those three things, but before we dive into that, I think it might be helpful if I just give you a little bit of context. You know, we, we say this here all the time, but if you are reading the Bible, context is very important because context helps you determine meaning. And you'll probably notice in both of these parables that they actually start the exact same way. They start by saying the kingdom of heaven is like The kingdom of heaven is like. So that's helpful. Now, why is that helpful? Because we know what Jesus is trying to describe to us, what he's trying to explain to us. What is it that he's trying to illuminate? He's trying to tell us something about the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting is, again, if you you look at the context, so if you zoom back even further and you look at Matthew chapter 13, so some of you have your Bibles open, and if you look at the entire chapter, you'll actually see that this is the theme of the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 13. And so actually, Jesus says in verse 11 uh, of Matthew 13, he says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, my disciples, he says, and not to them, this is why I speak in parables. So in other words, Jesus tells us, the reason I'm speaking in parables is because I'm speaking about my kingdom. I'm I'm trying to help introduce paradigm shifts about my kingdom. And then after this, Jesus goes on to give a string of parables, a whole bunch. So in verse 24, Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed. Verse 31, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Verse 33, another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net. So you see the theme. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the kingdom. And so, so the question that might come to your mind is, what exactly is that? What, what is he talking about when he's talking about the kingdom? Well, here's what you need to understand. When Jesus came, one of his primary teachings was that he claimed that he came to bring a kingdom, that Jesus came to bring a kingdom here on earth. Basically, what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's helping us understand a little bit of the nature of his kingdom and he's introducing us to the paradigm-shifting realities of what it means to follow him and make him the king of your life. So in other words, these are supposed to help us understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in this specific parable that we're reading, the first thing that Jesus is going to say is that following him is like finding a treasure of incomparable value. That is maybe one of the first things that sticks out to you about these parables, is that in both cases, both people find treasures of incomparable value. So look at the first one. The Bible's going to say this first guy, this is the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure that was hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again and then went and sold all he had and he bought that field. Very, very simple parable. Here's a guy, Jesus tells a story, he's in a field, somehow he uncovers this treasure that's in a field, and apparently it is of such supreme value that the Bible tells us that this guy runs out, sells everything that he has, liquidates all of his assets, purchases the field so he could obtain the treasure. Now, I, I know for you and I, that sounds like a pretty unlikely story, but I want you to know that back in Jesus's time, this is actually something that was probable. Not, not probable, it was something that was possible. It was something that could have happened. It was plausible. And, and the reason is, most likely... What Jesus has in mind when he's telling this parable, now we don't know for sure, but most likely he probably had a, a worker in mind. So back in the first century, landowners would oftentimes hire workers to work their land. So most likely this is a worker. He's out there working the land and he discovers this treasure. 
And then he quickly buries it again, and he goes and he sells everything, and he buys the field. Now, again, that might seem weird to us, but if you were here last week, you might remember Colin actually talked about this. Back in the first century, they didn't have banks like we have banks, and they didn't have, like, security boxes. And so if you had a big sum of money or if you had something that was really valuable that you wanted to keep safe from robbers or raiders, what you would oftentimes do is you would dig a big hole and you would bury it. It was very common for people to bury things to keep them safe. But oftentimes what would happen, or I should say sometimes what would happen, is a person would lose track of where they buried something, or, which was more likely, is a person would die. And so maybe they would die of natural causes, or maybe there'd be an invading army that would come in, and what would happen is that treasure would remain hidden. And, and in fact, you guys, I think this is, this is so crazy, but I was just looking into the history of this, um, just a little bit of history. Some of you guys maybe have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before. The Dead Sea Scrolls was, is an incredible find around the Dead Sea where archaeologists discovered a whole bunch of ancient documents and scrolls. Uh, a, a, a whole bunch of the Bible was discovered at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, but one of the things that they found at the Dead Sea Scrolls was actually this famous scroll. It's called the Copper Scroll. Sometimes it's called the Lost Treasure of the Dead Sea. So on this scroll, get this, are 64 places, 64 locations in Palestine where people buried treasure to hide it from invading armies. So over 64 treasures, the valued estimate of those treasures is over a billion dollars. And get this, it still hasn't been discovered yet. And I was reading this and you obviously don't have to read the whole thing, but I thought I'd just read a quick excerpt. This is an excerpt from the scroll that they found. It says this, silver coins are located at the sharp edge of the rock, which is under the eastern wall in the cistern. The cistern's entrance is under the large paving stone threshold. Dig down four cubits in the northern corner of the pool that's east of Colette. There will be 22 talents of silver coins. Isn't that crazy? It's like a treasure map. This is like something out of like, you know, national treasure or something like that. And you guys, they still haven't found it. So if you're looking for something kind of fun to do, uh, you can go on a treasure hunt and find this stuff. So anyway, all I'm saying is when Jesus gives this parable, that would have been like something that could have happened when he talks about this man. Now, Jesus goes on and gives a second parable. It's very similar, but it is different, slightly different. I want you to notice in the second parable, the Bible is going to tell us that this second person was a merchant. So unlike the first person, this person was a merchant. As some of you know, a merchant is someone who had a trained and an educated eye. It was someone who is trained to see value where the common person might not see value. It was a specialist. It was an expert. And unlike the first parable, this merchant didn't accidentally stumble upon treasure. This was someone who was looking for it. This guy was seeking it. He was going after the first guy. He stumbled upon it. The second guy, he was actually finding it. So he goes out. The Bible tells us that as he's looking, he ends up finding a pearl. And notice the Bible says that this pearl was of great value, such great value that he again sold everything that he had and he bought it. Now I want to zero in for just a moment and talk about this term great value. It's actually a really important word in the original Greek language. Now, I don't don't know about you, but when I hear great value, the first thing that comes to my mind is I think of the Walmart off-brand, great value. Um, Very familiar with that myself. And... uh, but I want, you to, I want you to know that in the Greek, that it actually means the exact opposite of that, okay? Uh, great value actually is only, it's a Greek word that's only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's a rare term, and it means exceedingly valuable. 
It means unfathomably priceless. That's what it means. It means very, very expensive. Now, again, just a little bit of history. Not to, I don't want to nerd out on you too much, but I thought this was really interesting. So back in the first century, did you know that the most valuable jewel would have been considered the pearl? So for you and I, we, we usually think of diamonds, right? Maybe, maybe we kind of think of something like that. That's the most prized kind of jewel that we know of. But that wasn't the case in the first century. It would have been pearls. Pearls were very risky and difficult to obtain. In fact, there actually was a pearl back in, the, back in this time that was owned by Cleopatra that was estimated to, it was believed to be uh, valued at 25 million denarii. Now, uh, let me just kind of put that into context for you. If you guys were here last week, you might remember one denarius is a unit of, of, uh, of money, and that would be the equivalent of one day's wage, one denarius. So 25 million denarii would be the equivalent to 25 million days wages. So I'm just saying, I don't think we have a, we don't have a jewel that's that valuable that we even know about. And so I'm just saying, when, when Jesus talks about this, they probably envision something like that. And the Bible says that this guy goes out and he takes this pearl and he sells everything he has to possess it. So what do these parables have in common? Well, the first thing he says is that following Jesus is like a treasure of incomparable value. Following him is like a treasure of incomparable value. But here, I believe, is one of the fundamental par- paradigm shifts that Jesus is inviting us into. And that is that even though following him is a treasure of incomparable value, that it is easily and often overlooked. It is a treasure that is easy and is often overlooked. In fact, notice back in this, these two parables, you'll notice another similarity. The similarity that you're gonna find is that in both cases, here's this tremendous treasure of tremendous value. And yet it is something that is easily and often overlooked. If you look at verse 44, he's gonna say that this treasure was hidden in a field. He's gonna say that this pearl of great price was found by a merchant. It took a trained and an educated eye to see the value that this person saw. What's the point? Here's the point. Many people would have missed it. Many people would have missed it. You think about this treasure in a field. How many people would have walked right over it? How many people would have walked right past it, not knowing what laid beneath the surface? With the the pearl, how many people would have walked right past it? With, With an untrained and uneducated eye, they would have kept going. They wouldn't have seen it. What's the point? Here's the point. This value, this incredible treasure of this incredible value is something that you have to dig a little bit to find and you have to be willing to look a little more intently to see. Otherwise, you're gonna miss it. Now, can I just tell you that if you ever read the Gospel of Matthew, one of the major themes in the Gospel of Matthew is actually this idea of hiddenness, hidden. That the things of God, that the values of God, that the kingdom of God is something that's not easily apparent and obvious to the untrained eye. You have to look a little deeper. You have to dig a little bit down to find its value. In fact, this, you're going to find this all throughout the Bible. Can I just give you a few examples of this idea, this concept that, that we're, we're talking about here? Here's one. You see this all throughout the Bible. But in the Bible, you're going to see that the incomparable value of the kingdom of heaven is hidden one of the places it's hidden is the humility of Jesus and the humility of Jesus. You know, this parable that Jesus gave, uh, his original audience would have been a Jewish audience. And to the Jewish person in this time, they were actually uh, people who were long expecting that God was gonna send a Messiah 
who was going to build a kingdom. That's what they anticipated. The whole Old Testament talked about this, that God was going to send a Messiah who was going to bring the kingdom of God, who was going to bring the kingdom of heaven. And they were anticipating that, and they were expecting that, and they were looking for that. And yet what's interesting, and some of you know this, is that most of the the Jewish people in the first century had a certain expectation of what that was going to look like. They they thought that the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to be a great political and military leader. And they thought that when he brought the kingdom, that he was going to overthrow Rome and he was going to sit on an earthly throne and that they would see this grand military success. That's what they were expecting. But of course, when Jesus came, it looked very different because Jesus was the Messiah and he did come to bring the kingdom, but it looked very humble. It was very humble. You guys know this. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus grew up in his life in relative obscurity. And even when he started his ministry, Jesus never fielded an army. Jesus never won an election. Jesus never sat on an earthly throne. And then to top it all off, Jesus was crucified on a criminal's cross. And the Bible is going to tell us that for this reason, the cross and the humility of Christ has become a stumbling block for people. That they can't get over it. They can't see the value of the kingdom of God. They can't see the value in following Jesus because of his great humility. Let me give you another example. In the Bible, you're gonna see this, that the incomparable value of the kingdom of heaven is hidden in the simplicity of the message of the gospel. It's hidden in the simplicity of the message of the gospel. You know, we talk about this sometimes, but if you think about the gospel with me for just a second. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, the gospel, the gospel just means the good news about Jesus. That's all it means. And the message of the gospel is actually pretty simple. It's actually not that complicated. In fact, let me just give you a simple explanation of the gospel message. There's a lot of different ways you could explain it. But here's a very simple definition of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel message is basically this. First off, it's that God is love. That God loves us, that God created us, that God created us on purpose, that it wasn't an accident that we were created to have a relationship with God, that God designed us to be in communion in a right relationship with him. And yet the gospel is gonna tell us that all have sinned. Every single one of us has turned away from God. We have rebelled against him. We've chosen to define and direct our life on our own apart from God. So the Bible's gonna tell us. And because of that, our relationship with God has been broken. It's been severed. And the Bible's going to tell us there is nothing that you and I can do in our own effort to reconcile ourselves to a right relationship with him. And yet the gospel is gonna say that the good news is that Jesus saves, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have eternal life. That basically God saw us in our need and he sent his son Jesus to live the life that we couldn't live and then to die the death that we deserve to die. And then Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again so that those who put their faith in him can have a reconciled relationship back to God and we have the hope of the resurrection. That is the gospel. Let me just say, many of you know that. You already know that. It is a simple message. You guys, this message is so simple that a four-year-old can understand it and can apprehend it and can place their faith in it. It's so simple. It's not that intellectually or philosophically complicated. It's not. And yet, this message is so profound that you could spend a hundred lifetimes trying to plumb the depths of, of the meaning of what uh, all that is in, the value that is in this message, and, and, you, would, and you wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times, you guys, about the gospel, I feel like it's almost like an acorn. You think about an acorn. An acorn is so small and it's so simple that a child can apprehend it and they can put it in their pocket. 
a child can have it. But at the same time, within that acorn lies the DNA of something that has the potential to grow into a mighty oak that a hundred people couldn't carry. And I'm just saying the gospel, you guys, these, these simple words in, or, in the mouths of ordinary people, as simple as they are, have the power, if you're willing to hear them and embrace them and believe them, to save your eternal soul and to reconcile you into a right relationship with God and give you the hope of the resurrection. And yet they're so simple. And so oftentimes this message is overlooked. I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. The incomparable value of the kingdom of heaven is hidden in ordinary believers, ordinary people, ordinary messengers. You know, sometimes I find myself thinking this. I, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's probably no surprise to you. And I, I find myself sometimes thinking, man, following Jesus is so awesome. And Jesus is so amazing. I, I wish everyone would follow Jesus. And sometimes I think to myself, man, if God, if God would just save a little, some, 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 a little bit more high-profile people, then more people might want to follow Jesus. Like I find myself thinking, like, man, you know, if God, if God could save, you know, some of the most brilliant intellectual minds, if God would save, you know, some of the most popular celebrities, or if He would save some of the, you know, the most famous athletes, if God would just, you know, if somehow, you know, T. Swift and Travis Kelsey became followers of Christ and they had like a Christ-centered religion, like then, then more people would start following Jesus. And I tend to think that. Now, let me just say, sometimes, yeah, for sure, sometimes God does, God saves all kinds of people. So for sure, he saves some high-profile people. But do you know the Bible's going to tell us that that's not God's typical mode of operation? It's not usually how he works. In fact, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, but, those, uh, but God chose the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now, I, I, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, I think when I read this, sometimes I'm like, uh, thanks, Paul? I don't know. Is that a compliment? I don't know what you're saying. But, but what he's saying is this. He's saying that, listen, God uses very ordinary people. In fact, a lot of times God uses very broken people like us. And, and within the ordinariness of the people is this message, this message that is of tremendous valuable, valuable worth. And, and sometimes what happens is we get so fixated on the people that we miss the message. It happens sometimes. Um, actually, this actually reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis once said. Some of you guys are familiar with C.S. Lewis's writings, but he actually wrote this, this incredible book uh, that's called The Screwtape Letters. Now, if you've never read this book, um, it is a weird book. It's really bizarre. It's a fiction book, and it's written from the vantage point of demons. So, so it is a senior demon. His name is Screwtape. And he's writing to his nephew, who's an apprentice demon named Wormwood, and he's giving him tips in how to derail Christ, his Christian clients. It's kind of so it's a bizarre book, but in his, I think it's so interesting. In the book, Screwtape, the senior demon, writes to his nephew, the apprentice demon. He writes this to him: When he, when the Christian, gets into the pew, that is, when he gets to church, right? We don't have pews here, but if he gets to when he gets to church, and he looks around and he sees that selection of his neighbors that he has previously avoided, provided that any of these neighbors, look at this, sing out a tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that the religion, therefore, must somehow be ridiculous. See what he says? This is brilliant. He says, listen, if, if you can just get that person 
to stop focusing on the message and stop focusing on Jesus and start focusing on the people around them. And if they can start noticing their clothes and that they sing out of tune and the little idiosyncrasies and imperfections about that person, it will actually cause them to devalue the message itself, to, to question the validity of what's actually being spoken. Listen, some of you have experienced this. Some of you, maybe you've been coming around to grace, maybe you're investigating Jesus, or maybe you started following Christ, maybe you even started getting involved in a life group, but you find yourself, you just can't get over that one person at church who just has terrible breath, or that person who, at life group who just won't stop talking. Don't look at them right now, it's not the time. All right, no, no nudging. But it happens, and maybe that you've allowed that to cause you to think, man, I don't know if I believe this stuff. In fact, maybe, let's just be honest, maybe even for some of you right now, that's what's happening in your mind. You're listening to all this and you're looking at me and you might be thinking to yourself, this guy's not that impressive. I mean, gosh, this message is not all that intellectually complicated. The guy looks like he shops for great value stuff. Right? <laughs> Undeniably, he's attractive. I'll give him that. But all I'm saying is, listen, don't be fooled by the ordinariness of the field. Uh, The Bible says that this guy found a treasure, but it was buried in a field of ordinariness. This merchant saw value where no one else could see it. And let me just say, if you're a person who's investigating Jesus, by the way, um, if you're someone who's investigating Christ, we count it such an honor that you would let us be part of your investigation. But if you're someone who's investigating Jesus, or maybe you're someone who at one point would say that you were sold out for Jesus, but something along the way caused you to maybe walk away in some ways. Can I just just say that I believe what this parable is encouraging you to do? I think what Jesus is inviting you to do is he's saying, hey, listen, um, look a little closer. Dig a little deeper. Don't give up on that search because things are not always what they seem. And maybe for you, the reason that you have passed on Christianity is because the simplicity or the ordinariness of the message. Maybe for you, it's because there's just an obstacle that you have and you're like, I can't. Maybe for you, it's the people. Maybe there's been hypocrisy that you've seen in the church and it's causing you to overlook the tremendous treasure of Jesus. I think Jesus is inviting you to look a little closer. And, and here, here's the reason. It's because I think that what you're going to see is that following Jesus is a treasure of incomparable value that's easily and often overlooked. But here, here's, the, here's the real twist. Yeah, when discovered, it evokes joyful abandon. Uh, in both of these parables, do you notice that there's like this eureka moment, right? So the first guy finds a treasure and he's got to be like, oh, eureka, this is an incredible moment. And then the, the, the merchant sees the pearl and he's like, oh my goodness, I finally found it. But for both of them, do you notice that this moment, they realize that there is no halfway way to get the treasure that they have found. Both of them, what do they do? They sell it all. They understand that this is an all-in moment. This is an all or nothing moment. They got to risk it all. They got to risk it all. For both of them, listen, they they had to abandon everything to possess the one thing. And they said, we're going for it. We're selling it all. We're giving it all away. Now, normally, if you have to abandon everything, that would be a really difficult and devastating thing to do. But I want you to notice that there are three key words that are in the middle of this parable that I think are so important. The Bible is going to say this. It's going to say that this guy in his joy sold everything. He sold it all. In his 
joy. You guys, I think that that is so important, what Jesus is saying here. You know, sometimes when we talk about following Jesus, um, you'll hear people say words like this. They'll say things like abandon. Hey, if you wanna, if you wanna follow Christ, you have to abandon a certain life that you are living. There's things you need to leave behind to follow him. We'll say words like this, sacrifice. Following Jesus requires that you sacrifice. It requires that there's certain habits, that there's certain pursuits in your life that you need to cut ties with. Uh, We talk about the idea of dying to yourself. Uh, If Jesus is gonna be the king of your life, that means that you can't be. There's only one throne uh, that's over your heart and either you will sit on that or Jesus will sit on that. We talk about the idea of denying yourself, of, of taking up your cross, and this idea of losing your life. And by the way, I just wanna, I wanna validate, this is all true. All these statements that are here are true. In fact, Jesus is the one who said most of these. Uh, Jesus said, hey, if you wanna follow me, you need to take up your cross every day. Following Jesus involves a daily dying to yourself sacrifice. It requires that you leave certain things behind. All of that is true and all of that is good. I don't, listen, if you're someone investigating Jesus, I just want to be very clear with you. Following Jesus is costly and it does involve all these things. This is not always easy. It's not. However, I think that all these statements are true, but taken by themselves, they are short-sighted. This parable, I think, is helping us put these terms into proper perspective. Why is it that these people in these parables so joyfully and so willingly went and sold everything they had? Because here's what it was. They knew that they weren't losing something. They knew they were trading something. It's interesting. um, When I read this parable, I am always reminded of a conversation Jesus had with a really impressive young guy named the rich young ruler. Some of you guys know the story. It's in Mark chapter 10. This guy comes up to Jesus, he's a rich young ruler, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, "Uh, keep all the commandments. And the guy said, I've done that ever since I was a kid. And I love Jesus' response. Look what it says in Mark 10. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Like that's really important. Jesus loved him. And then he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have. Abandon, sacrifice, give it all. And give it to the poor that you might have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Now, sometimes when we read this, we think to ourselves, man, you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying to this guy, sacrifice. He's saying to this guy, give it all up. He's saying, abandon. But if you look more carefully, I think what you're gonna see is Jesus wasn't just calling this guy to sacrifice. He was actually offering him a trade. And what was the trade? He said, listen, get rid of all of it and come follow me. Be my disciple. What he was offering him was this, leave that kingdom and make me the king and pursue me. And listen, the Bible's gonna say that this man, look what it says. It says, this man, his face fell and he went away very, do you notice the word? Sad. He was sad because he had incredible wealth. Why was he sad? Because he didn't see the value. Now you compare that with this parable. And the Bible says this guy in his joy went and gave everything. He understood the value that was there. You know, this reminds me of a quote. Some of you guys have heard of a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a famous Christian missionary and he ended up um, giving his life for Christ. He died as a martyr. And if you've never read his story, you need to read it. You need to look him up. It's amazing. But they actually found a journal entry that he had written before he was killed. And this is what he had written in his journal. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Like there's something about that. See what he was saying? He was saying, listen, 
Anyone would gladly and willingly give up all things to possess the one thing that is worth everything. That's Jesus. He found this to be true. I think what Jim Elliot found is exactly what Jesus is showing us, is that following him is a treasure of incomparable value that is easily and often overlooked. And yet, when it's discovered, it evokes joyful abandon. Listen, I know these words on the screen and this lesson that we see in this parable is something that uh, for some of us in this room, we've discovered this. For some of us in this room, we have found this. And maybe you can even point to a time in your life and a day in your life and even a moment in your life when this became a reality to you. For some of us in this room, we're still searching for this. We are searching for the one thing that is worth everything. For some of us, we have known this, but we have forgotten this, and we have lost sight of this, and our hearts have drifted from this. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I can just speak for myself. I remember very vividly the first time in my life that this idea that we're talking about became a reality in my own life. I remember it very, very vividly. And uh, some of you guys know my, my story. Uh, I'll just tell you a little bit of it, but Um, I actually started following Jesus right before my 17th birthday. So I started following Christ when I was about 17. By the time I was 18, I was enrolled in Bible college and I was pursuing vocational ministry in some way. And so I always tell people that year of my life, there was um, rapid and um, just like, um, like a high amount of transformation that happened in that year. A lot transformed in that year of my life. And um, sometimes I've been asked this question. People have asked me before, um, why did you start pursuing ministry as a, as a career and what was it that caused you to do that? And it's interesting because I can actually tell people, I remember the, the very moment that I was like, this is what I'm gonna do. Not that everyone should do this, but I was like, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. I'm gonna give my life to serving Jesus. And if that means vocationally doing it, then I'm gonna do it. I remember the moment. I remember the moment. So it was, this, it was the, uh, the summer of my senior year. So I've been following Jesus now for about a year. And I actually signed up to go on this trip. It was, a, it, was a, it was a Christian trip with a group of about 30 teenagers. And there were some leaders. And it was a service trip. So we, would, we went around the country. And we went from church to church to ministry to ministry to different cities. And basically, we did service projects in the name of Jesus. And so we did a whole lot of picking up trash and painting stuff and cleaning stuff. But we also did a lot of Bible stuff. And so we would put on Bible camps. We would go to parks and we'd do kids programs for kids and we'd share the Bible. On this trip, I actually preached my very first sermon. I was 18 years old being on this trip. I remember it very, very vividly. And anyway, I I remember when I signed up to go on this trip, um, right before it was time to leave to go on this trip, all my friends were, it was our senior, it was the summer of our senior year. So I remember all of my friends, we were talking about what we were gonna do that summer and all of my friends were like, dude, we're gonna stay home, we're gonna work, we're gonna save up for college and then we're just gonna hang out. We're gonna have fun. This is gonna be a summer to remember. We're just gonna, it's gonna be awesome. And I remember thinking to myself, what did I do? Why am I gonna go do this service project thing? I could be having the summer of my life. I could be hanging out with my friends, staying up late all night, doing whatever. And I could just, I could just do that instead. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? But I ended up going on this trip. And I, 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 about halfway through the summer, I, I so vividly remember this moment. About halfway through the summer, we were in Indiana, the middle of nowhere, Indiana. And we were at this church. 
And it was this rundown church. And I remember we had spent the day doing service projects and then we were doing some kids program that evening and we were just really tired. And at the end of the day, it was time for bed. And one of the things about this trip was, you know, there's a whole bunch of us. They were always trying to figure out where are we gonna sleep? And so uh, it happened to be that that evening that the guys, the, the guys on the trip were gonna sleep in the church. And so the pastor, he came to us and he said, hey guys, he said, we tried to find some places for you to sleep, but unfortunately there's, there's too many of you. We don't have a good spot to accommodate you. So we're gonna ask that you guys sleep in the basement of the church, which is not a problem. And so we got to the basement of the church. And when we got down there, this church was already pretty run down, but this basement, you guys, it was, it was like a dungeon. And I can still imagine, I can actually still smell it in my memory. It's like this dungeon. And he goes, so, he goes I'm sorry, you guys, but you're gonna be sleeping down here. And then he said this, and he goes, and I don't want to freak you out. He said, but I, I really recommend that if you can, try to sleep on an elevated surface down here. And I was like, why? And, uh, and he goes, again, I'm not trying to freak you out. He goes, but there's like a lot of cockroaches down here. And I'm telling you guys, that freaked me out because I had heard somewhere that like cockroaches can nest in your ears. I don't know if that's true. I don't know, but it was in my mind. And so, so get this, here's the scene. I'm, I'm laying on top of a folding table in my sleeping bag, in the dark, surrounded by 15 guys in this dungy basement with toilet paper in my ears, all right? And I remember laying there. Gosh, I remember this so well. I mean, I, I, just, I was laying there. And I remember I was thinking of my friends at home and I was thinking about what they were doing and I was thinking about what I was doing and I was thinking about what I had done that day and I was thinking about being on this table in this basement and I was thinking about living for Jesus and I remember thinking to myself, this makes no sense, but I have never been this fulfilled in my life. I remember thinking, I found joy I have found it, and there is nowhere else that I'd rather be, except for the cockroaches. There's nowhere else that I'd rather, and, and I'll tell you guys, it was in that moment that the words of Jesus became a reality to me. I remember so clearly the words of Christ that said, he who lo loses his life for my sake will find it. I never understood that before. I thought it was like Jesus talking and Jesus riddle talk, you know? If you find your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. I'm like, I don't know what that means. But in that basement in Indiana, I was like, I know what that means. That if you lose your life for Christ's sake, there is a treasure that is to be found. And it's a joyful treasure. It's a joyful. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. I have to go back to that moment often because I lose sight of this. I forget, I forget the surpassing value of Jesus. I have to go back and remind myself. I think this parable should cause us, should cause all of us to really maybe ask a few questions. Here's the first question. I think specifically, if you're someone who's investigating Christ, I think the question is, have I overlooked Jesus? Have I overlooked him? I think this parable is inviting you to ask that. Maybe you're someone who's investigating Christ. Maybe you're someone who's walked with Jesus, but you've walked away from Christ. Like the question is, have you overlooked the treasure? Have you overlooked the treasure? And I just wanna encourage you, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Look a little closer, dig a little deeper. Things are not always what they seem on the surface. I don't know who hurt you. I don't know what happened to you. I don't know 
what it is about the gospel that is causing you to, to, to say, this is not for me, but I just wanna encourage you, Jesus is inviting you to keep, to keep looking, keep digging, and keep searching. I think for those of us who follow Jesus, here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Do I view following Jesus as a mournful loss or as a joyful trade? How do I view following Jesus? Is it a more, listen, I just want to be honest with you. If you're a follower of Jesus and the Christian life is most often for you a series of have tos and it's never get tos. It's always, no, I have to. I guess I have to go to church. I guess I have to be part of, I guess I have to. I guess I can't do those things because I have to follow. I guess I can't go with you guys to that thing because I have to. And it's always have to and it's never get to. I think that means that maybe, that maybe, maybe there is a need for there to be a reappraisal of the value, surpassing value of following Jesus. Now hear me, I'm not saying that, that if you're a follower of Christ, you just have to have a smile on your face all the time and pretend like everything is always great because it's not always great. And sometimes it's hard and sacrifice isn't always easy. And that's all true. But what I am saying is if you find yourself most often dejected and mournful of the things that are lost to pursue Christ, I think that you need to reevaluate the surpassing value of Jesus. You got to come back to that. And what do you tell some? What do you tell someone who has an opportunity to buy the Declaration of Independence, but they're sad because they got to spend four bucks? Like, are you like, I know it's hard, man, and I know you love those four dollars, but you really have to do it. No, what you say is, you're like, dude, think, think. Don't focus on what you're losing. Focus on the tremendous value of what you're gaining. Listen, this 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 is why I think for those of us who follow Christ, it's so important that we gather together like we do. I think it's so important that we come together and we remind ourselves. I think it's important. This is why we sing together. What are we doing when we're singing together? You know what we're doing? We are declaring the praise of Jesus. We're saying, man, he is worthy. He is valuable. We're reminding our hearts and we're reminding each other of the surpassing value of the treasure that we found. And the last question, and with this, I'll invite the band to come up. This question's for everybody. I think this, this parable is inviting us to ask the question, what am I spending my life on? Because the question isn't, are you spending your life on something? The question is, what are you spending? We're all spending our life on something. And I guess the real question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And what Jesus is trying to invite us into is he's saying, there is something, there is one thing that is worth everything. And the treasure is found in him. I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, some of you know a little bit of his story. He was a man who... Uh, was a first century missionary, his life was utterly transformed by Jesus. And I can't help but wonder when I read the Apostle Paul's writings, if he couldn't help, if he couldn't help but see himself in this parable. I think that maybe Paul would have viewed himself as the merchant. And the Bible's gonna tell us, Paul's actually gonna tell us his own story. And before he came to know Jesus, he actually put a lot of value in his religious achievements. He had some very fine pearls. So he talks about how he was born into the right family and how he was educated to a certain degree and he had this incredible pedigree and he had all these religious achievements and he was just really good. And he talks about all of that, but then he finds Jesus and he ends up abandoning all of that to follow Christ. And here's what the apostle Paul says about that experience. He says, whatever were gains to me, whatever was valuable to me before, I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the, here it is, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
for whom for his sake I've lost all things, all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. See he's saying? Paul's saying, I found a treasure. And he is the one thing that is worth all things. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to say thank you for your parables. Thank you for loving us so much that you've given us these, these awesome parables to help us understand some of the mysteries of what it means to follow you. And Jesus, I pray that as we have an opportunity right now to worship and sing together, would you draw our hearts to the incomparable value that is found in finding you as our treasure? Remind our hearts and help us remind each other that there is nothing that's more precious. There is nothing that is more valuable. There's nothing that is more joyful than living and serving you. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, just in our own hearts, uh, help us to confront the things that we tend to run to or we tend to value over you. And I pray that you draw us back to you, to your heart. Pray for the person who's investigating, who's exploring, who's trying to piece their faith together. And God, I ask you that maybe even now that you would just speak to them in the quiet places of their heart, that, uh, that they would be able to speak to you, to pray to you, and to maybe even surrender to you in these moments. So we love you, Jesus. We want to pray these things in your name. Amen.